Hi, and welcome to the first installment of Ms. Hopgood Reads The Great Gatsby During the Pandemic of 2020. A few things that I want to draw your attention to before we start this novel. So F. Scott Fitzgerald published this in 1925. The setting of the novel takes place in 1922. This is important because I want you to think for a moment the implications of writing a story in the present time and having it published within a couple of years. And think about the experiences and how you can relate what's happening as opposed to, let's say, writing about something that happened 50 years ago. So F. Scott Fitzgerald is writing this novel during the time that he is living and experiencing things um, in the 1920s. Another thing I want you to consider as we start this is our narrator. And you're going to find out that his name is Nick Carraway. And he sets this up as a frame story, which means there is a story within a story. And so The Great Gatsby is his memoir of this time that happened during the spring, summer, early fall of 1922. And he is reflecting back on this time and when he meets this person named Gatsby. So we will start reading The Great Gatsby, Chapter One. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Chapter One. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. He didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way, and I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me, and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person. And so it came about that in college, I was unjustly accused of being a politician because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently, I have feigned sleep preoccupation, or a hostile levity when I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I am a little afraid of missing something if I forget that, as my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. And after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform not a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, 
the name who gives his the man who gives his name to this book was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him. Some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life, as if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. This responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. It was an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby. What foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. My family had been prominent well-to-do people in this Middle Western city for three generations. Caraways are something of a clan, and we have a tradition that were descended from the Dukes of Bulick, but the actual founder of my line was my grandfather's brother, who came here in 51 sent a substitute to the Civil War, and started the wholesale hardware business that my father carries on today. I never saw this great uncle, but I'm supposed to look like him, with special reference to the rather hard-boiled painting that hangs in father's office. I graduated from New Haven in 1915, just a quarter of a century after my father, and a little later I participated in that delayed Teutonic migration known as the Great War. I enjoyed the counter-raid so thoroughly that I came back restless. Instead of being the warm center of the world, the Middle West now seemed like the ragged edge of the universe. So I decided to go east and learn the bond business. Everybody I knew was in the bond business, so I supposed it could support one more single man. All my aunts and uncles talked it over as if they were choosing a prep school for me and finally said, Why, yes with very grave, hesitant faces. Father agreed to finance me for a year, and after various delays, I came east, permanently, I thought, in the spring of 22. Before our main character actually talks about going into the bond business, I would like to review a few things that we already know about him. First, he starts off by saying, Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, which is the advice that his father had given to him, and his father tells him, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had, which already suggests that our narrator is going to be someone who has had privileges. So this is not a working class person. The second clue that gives this away is he's talking about when he was in college in New Haven. And what he's talking about is Yale um, College in New Haven, Connecticut. So that is considered to be an Ivy League school. And so if you attend an Ivy League school, you're either incredibly rich or you are incredibly smart and you go on scholarship. And so the other thing is that our narrator talks about when he came back from the Great War. 
So he um, served in World War One. He comes back home to this Midwestern city, and he says that he was somewhat bored, and that his father, and he calls him father. He doesn't call him dad. He doesn't call him pop. He doesn't call him daddy. He says, father, father agreed to finance me for one year, which suggests that his father has the financial means to be able to support his son living in New York City for up to a year. Um, We also find out some things about his family. And he says that we have this tradition that we're descended from these dukes. And the word tradition, he doesn't say that we have this lie, we have this story, we have this tradition. And so um, that they're descended from dukes. But in reality, the family actually starts because his great uncle pays someone. Um, He sends a substitute on his behalf to the Civil War moves out to the Midwest and starts a wholesale hardware business. And then um, our narrator, our protagonist, um, he talks about how his father carries on that business today. So they've made their money, their fortune, through this wholesale hardware business. And um, then he talks about how he's supposed to look like this great uncle. But then once again, he always refers to his dad as father. And so we have that formality there as well. Um, he then talks about wanting to go to the East. And in this particular case, when he's talking about the East, he means New York city where he is going to go into the bond business. And then he says, um, the very last sentence of that paragraph, father agreed to finance me for a year. And after various delays, I came East permanently. I thought in the spring of 22, So that is where our story is actually going to start when he arrives in New York in 1922, that he thinks he will be there permanently. Um, Also, I would like to draw your attention to the very beginning, starting with um, the paragraph and after boasting this way of my tolerance. And he, let's see, about five sentences down, he says, When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and at a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. So something has happened, and now he is going to tell us what that something is. So we have this foreshadowing that something has happened, so much so that when he goes back home to the Midwest, he wants nothing to do with, you know, he says, I wanted um, no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. And then the only one exempt from this whole entire thing is Gatsby. And then he goes on to say, Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. So Gatsby represents everything that this guy, Nick Carraway, you're going to find out his name, that everything that he absolutely hates. And then he continues to say, if personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him. 
And he's talking about there is something so gorgeous about Gatsby, but he talks about like the gorgeousness in the sense that Gatsby has this way of hoping. Like he had an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. And then he goes on to say, no, Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on him, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. So something has happened, something so much so that this guy now is reflecting on this, and then this is the story that we are going to read. <laughs> 